This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Judy Nunn, welcome to Better Reading. Yeah, thank you, Cheryl. Hello to you. Ah, oh, it's been a while since I've seen you. Oh, uh, two years, darling, two years. A book, you know what it's like. Yeah, but do you know, just before lockdown, you were meant to come to our office. I don't know if you remember this, and you were going to do book club, and we had to cancel it. That's all. I certainly remember. Yeah, I was looking yeah. forward to that. Mm. Yeah, because of COVID. So, um, you know, one day we'll see each other again in person. Do you know, when I was preparing for this podcast, Judy, I was thinking how long we've known each other thinking about the first time we met. Do you remember that? You remember? Uh, yeah, you were working at Random House. Yes. And it was, I think, if I'm right, it was the first video uh, clip that we made yeah. Yeah. for any of my books. I forget which book. Which book was it? I can't remember, but it was then. It was back yeah, then. Yeah, and I just yeah. remember, um, I remember being out with you too and seeing how many people recognised you and, you know, you were always stopped and you were always so courteous about it as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I, but that must have been the days I was with you. That's nice to know. <laughs> Oh, no. okay. well, I don't shock people in the face if they stop me. But I must say, I do prefer these days when people stop me and say, oh, you're Judy Nunn, I love your books, yeah. you know, rather than, oh, g'day, Elsa, that's that bird from telly. You know, I really do prefer the book the book relationship. Well, I guess that transition has happened now, hasn't it? Because you've been writing for such a long time. Oh, yeah, hugely. Yeah. Hugely. Yeah. yeah. So um, it's it's very thrilling. That I love. I, you yeah. know, when I get stopped in Woolies and, and you know, oh, you know, I love your books and everything. Oh, I just want to marry them. It's very nice. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same, actually. Do you know, I was stopped in the park recently by a woman who uh, follows Better Reading and follows <laughs> our segments. And she said, oh, you're Cheryl from Better Reading. Well, do you know, my heart, I was so happy about that because it's really nice to meet people that like what you're doing. Yeah, of course it is. Very yeah. warming. Yeah. Now, for those that don't know Judy, and I can't imagine there'd be many people, Judy is one of Australia's best-selling authors, having published numerous bestsellers, including Khaki Town, Spirits of the Garn and Sanctuary. She also had an illustrious career as a theatre and television actor and scriptwriter. So today she's here. She's got a new novel. It's called Showtime. It is set in 19th century Melbourne as people flocked to the goldfields and show business boomed in the city. Beautiful book. And I tell you what, I really love the cover as well. It's a beauty, isn't it? Yes, it's a, it's, a great job with the cover. Yeah, yeah. Talk to me about the idea. Where did the? How did this book come about? Well, strangely enough, it it might have been prompted to a certain extent through COVID. Isn't that weird? Because as you know, Cheryl, uh, the majority of my books, well, all my books except for the first couple, have been historically based. Uh, I love having my fictional characters move through really dramatic historical times and places and even mingle with real historical uh, people of that period. And 
this time around, I did think I wanted to uh, marry the my historical love of writing uh, or my love of writing historical fiction uh, with uh, the theatre, therefore the history, not from the dead set get-go, but from the birth of the golden era of Australian theatre, which really did occur during the gold rush days. So then I thought, well, that's what I'll do because I couldn't travel anywhere else. If I wanted to look at setting a book in the Northern Territory or, or, or far north Queensland or WA or, you know, I couldn't travel. Well, of course I couldn't travel to Melbourne either and the Victorian Goldfields. But I do know that area. I worked in Melbourne for quite a number of years, uh, both on telly and both also in the theatre. I did quite a lot of theatre in some of those beautiful grand uh, theatres of Melbourne, and I've worked a great deal in the grand theatres of Sydney as well. So I thought, well, I already know so much, not only about the place, but about the theatre. And funnily enough, I, so I felt a bit safer than, say, picking something like, you know, well, as I've done before, gold mining in Kalgoorlie or mm. or you know, nuclear bomb testing in the desert of South Australia. You've got to go there to really explore that. But in mixing the both, my love of theatre and my love of writing historical fiction, I discovered the ease of the familiarity that came with it. Because funnily enough, uh, theatre and the people in it haven't, in the essence of it, hasn't really changed all that much. There's so much that's still was happening in the 1800s that happens today. You know, the superstitions, the theatre ghosts, the show must go on type of attitude. Uh, theatre people haven't changed all that much. In reading the book, I started, because we're in lockdown and we're, you know, we're hopefully at the end stages of COVID, but, you know, we've been in a hard three-month lockdown and I thought about show business and I thought about, you know, it, it made me think about all those people that aren't working at the moment that it's been so long, really, since theatre people have been working and we've seen live shows, even movies and TV, you know. But also, too, I looked at it from my end as a viewer, as, a, as an audience member, and they're the things that I have missed, that interaction. I mean, yes, I'm watching Netflix and that's fine, but it's not the same, is it? Uh, no, not at all. And I tell you, from the actor's perspective, it really is tragic because when I mentioned that adage, the show must go on, truly that that is in the, the, the absolute DNA of theatre actors. Uh, I mean, they when a theatre goes dark, it's tragic. They call it mm. going dark. They keep a ghost light. Uh, in the theatre, so that the theatre actually is never in true black. Uh, it's sort of like a, 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 in mourning. I mean, the perfect example of the show must go on uh, a situation, I often say when I'm you know, doing a talk or something, is the Windermill Theatre in, in the heart of London's West End. During the Blitz uh, of World War II, the, the entire bombing of London, the Windmill Theatre remained performing. Uh, they would make announcements if the audience wished to leave when the sirens are Please go. The show goes on, so it, it that and then for years afterwards, of course, they had this great big neon sign outside the theatre saying "We never closed," you know. So it, it that it's very very hard for performers, not just from the very obvious situation of no earnings, no audience, no thrill, no as you very rightly say, no interconnection, but they're in, they're really in mourning inside for for what mm. they do. You don't, you don't go into the theatre to become a millionaire. and I mean, you go in there because you're driven by a great love of it. 
Yeah, I, I really, I think the last thing I saw before this hard lockdown was Deborah Oswald on stage at the Belvoir Theatre and she was wow. magnificent. She did that one-person show, which was so great. But oh, was, I, that, was that Doreen Gray? Uh, I can't remember what it was. Because I was booked for Dorian Gray. I forget, right. to my shame, yeah. I forget the name of the actor, but she, it was one on show and she was yeah. stunning. Yeah, She was gone. absolutely stunning. It was a mesmerising show. I'll look it up in a minute. But what I wanted to say was I'm not a huge theatre goer. You know, I like the theatre and I go. I don't have set kind of tickets where I buy from here and here. And But I never say no when somebody asks me or I never, you know, if I, I will seek things out. But it has been one of the things that I have missed in COVID and I didn't think that would happen to me. <laughs> and it is. It's about That's Proof in the pudding, yeah. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. You've touched on it a little bit. But talk to me about research. Like it's two years between books. How long does research take in that time, would you think? Well, I, I, I never stop researching uh, t- in, in a technical sense. I yeah. mean, I read multitudinous books. When they're mine and I've bought them, I deface them shockingly. Uh, when they're library books or books that I've borrowed that I need to return, of course, I put little notets with right throughout them. So uh, having read uh, huge amounts, I'm referring to these all the while as I write. Uh, but the field research, I go to a place uh, at least at least a couple of times. You know, that means travel. Of uh, So I probably physically uh, put aside about three months for travelling, going there, talking to people, discovering the local historian, meeting librarians, of course. We love librarians who will point you to the correct books. Otherwise, if you just listen to other people, they'll say, oh, you've got to read this, you've got to read that. And suddenly, you know, you've got so many books, you you don't have time to write your own. So uh, that there'd be about three months for that. And then, of course, the further nine months when I'm actually writing the book, I'm still researching as I go. And I like Mr Google. I I like the uh, information highway. But you've got to be very, very careful. I mean, even dear old Wikipedia, which I visit a great deal and contribute to financially, they can get it wrong. There are, Mm. you know, so much... Uh, you know, people's memories and human memory is very selective and things. So you've got to be careful there. Now, listen, I just looked up Deborah Oswald so we get this right. It was a Griffith Theatre and the show was called Is There Something Wrong With That Lady? Um, All right. And it was a really honest portrayal of her just on stage talking about, you know, her success with Offspring and as a a scriptwriter and then how it was almost impossible after that to get a writing job. Anyway, wonderful. But that was the last thing I saw and I think it was about four or five months ago just before lockdown. I want to talk about how is it – I've spoken to a lot of writers about lockdown and a lot of writers have said to me that it really hasn't changed their life very much because they were always quite reclusive. They like work from home, you know, they were always at home writing. Some of them were now at home with their families and their children and their husbands, and that was a bit challenging. What impact did it have on you and in terms of your work? Well, yeah, I am an author and I can see that point of view. You you live yeah. in your little office and I've got an office with a lovely view, et cetera. But Showtime is a very social book. Mm. Um, You know, uh, I had to rely a great deal on, as I've said, memories of shows I've done, of people I know, of funny stories that come from the theatre and from show business in general. So uh, fortunately I have a very 
um, <laughs> as you know, I think you've met Bruce. I have oh, a very I have. <laughs> amusing, vital uh, husband. So I would talk showtime with Bruce and we would exchange all these wonderful stories, actors, old actors' stories. And I was reading up on a lot of books of anecdotes, actors' anecdotes and things like that. But, I mean, I've got to do one of the favourite ones, which puts me right in the theatre where showtime is, uh, was um, Ralph Richardson, the great Ralph Richardson known amongst his buddies as Rafe, and he's a magnificent actor. And one time in the 1950s, he was doing a dreadful drawing room play, which during the 50s they were the great fashion of the day, and he loathed it. I mean, he was a great Shakespearean actor, a very eccentric man, everybody knew. He was quite nutty. But, I mean, he played Iago to, uh, you know, Laurence Olivier's Othello, and sometimes I believe in repertoire they'd even swap the role and sometimes Rafe would play Othello and, and uh, you know, Larry would play uh, Iago. But on this particular time, there he was with this, this, this drawing room comedy and he dried. Uh, he was so lacking an interest in the thing that he dried mid-performance and uh, he just thought he needed a moment to sort of get the words back. So he just, in those days when they had footlights, and he just walked down to the footlights of the stage and he looked over into the audience and he said, uh, excuse me, is there a doctor in the house? And uh, this gentleman stood up and he said, yes, sir, I am a doctor. And Ralph Richardson, he thought, oh, yeah, I know where we are now. The words have come back, the lines. He said, oh, doctor, isn't this the most dreadful play? And then he went back upstage and went on with the scene, you know. I mean, <laughs> stories like that are just divine. So Bruce and I talked a great deal about theatre and the characters that we know and even, you know, apocryphal stories, everything. So that put me in this social framework, which I found very, very uh, important. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Do you think that the way you wrote, like the discipline of writing and the way that you approach work changed in COVID or were you just, you know, you're doing what you've always done? Uh, I was doing what I, I always do. Uh, I had to cancel a whole lot of holidays uh, naturally, as I think, you know, everybody did. Not that I madly take holidays when I'm in the middle of writing, but uh, I, I do usually have a two-week break here or a week break there where I do copious notes so I know exactly where I'm at and I don't leave between a rock and a hard place or whatever because I don't write when I'm when I'm away. Uh, so I had to cancel that, which means I got the manuscript in ahead of time, <laughs> So, which it was a bit of a catch-22 situation too because then they kept, they were cracking the whip a lot earlier. I thought, oh, dear, maybe I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> but, no, that was good. But reporting to the office, my lovely office, which I, you know, I call my office, not my study, yeah, that was same old actually. So probably like some of the authors you've been speaking to, I didn't feel as trapped 
by COVID as many, many others mm. people have. Mm. I'm sure we've talked about this before, but can you go back a little bit and tell me, you know, when and how you wrote your first book, how it is that you came to writing? Because, you know, you're a natural born storyteller and you'd been acting, you'd been on stage, you've been telling stories for a long time. Talk to me about that early transition of going from that art form to writing. Uh, well, I'd always been writing, actually. I mean, I started writing my first book when I was nine, you know, because yeah, I wow. thought, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be a writer one day. And then I turned 10 and I decided, no, I think I'll be an actor. So writing has always been, you know, in my guts. And it just took a back seat for quite a long time. But I was writing scripts. I remember when I was working for the Melbourne Theatre Company, actually, and I was doing, it was a Shaw play, Man and Superman, and it's a big role of Anne in Man and Superman, and I was writing this thriller called Liar Liar, which actually all these years later it was used as a title for a Jim Carrey film, but it was not, this was a thriller. And uh, suddenly, and, and there's quite a long break where Anne's not on stage, uh, and then Act Two and boom, up it comes and she's on with a vengeance. And I, I raced out on stage and my head was still in this studio or car park sort of area where this woman was, she could hear the, the footsteps behind her and the echo. And I thought, oh, God, you, you're back you're back in uh, Shavian. Uh, you know, and it was scary. So I, I don't write when I really have to get there on stage or something. I gave that up very quickly. Um, so, yeah, there, there's no demarcation of great transition, I can't. I can't remember that really. I was so always... what was your first published book? Uh, the Glitter Game was my first adult fiction book. I had two children's novels uh, published before that and two others written in, in partnership. That sort of happened by mistake. Uh, but my first adult fiction was The Glitter Game, set in television. It was a satire. And how did you get that published? Oh, well, uh, people were vying for it, <coughs> funnily yeah. enough, because they thought it was uh, going to be all kiss and tell and uh, Jackie Collins and all of this sort of stuff, you know. So I actually had several publishers after it, which is most unusual for first-off novelists. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, yeah, so then it led on from there. And it was. It, it came in in the Bulletin 10 bestseller very quickly. So, uh, But then I changed tune and wrote different sort of books. And come the third one, I was very much involved in historically based fiction. And so was, was there a time when you were doing both, you were acting and writing? Oh, yes. By the time I left Home and Away, which I seem to have been in forever and ever, um, I had five books published. Oh, wow. Which was very fortuitous because when I left this long-running soap, uh, I already had a following, I had a readership. So that did actually make for a an automatic switch in careers, for which I'm deeply grateful because in this country you really don't get overnight bestseller status that can support you with one yeah. book. You might in America, million-dollar bestseller or something, but uh, by the time with five books published that had proved very popular... Um, I had, a, you know, a different, another living, uh, which was was great. And I, I didn't set out to become, well, I'm going to become a best-selling novelist. I didn't set out to do that. I set out to write books that I just love and get very passionate about writing, and they turned out to be very successful. So pretty lucky. Yeah. Do you miss anything about TV? Do you miss anything about that part of your life? Or is it 
I mean, maybe you did a little while ago, but I, I often wonder if I stopped doing what I'm doing, how much of it I would miss. How did you feel when you tried? I didn't miss it at all. I mean, I've got some gorgeous mates that I yeah. mean, you know, I, I still, every time I hear Ray Ma's voice on the phone when we chat, we don't see each other as much as we should. He and his lovely woman, Jilly. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we'll stay mates forever. He was my other husband. And uh, you know, there are some beautiful mates, but that's show business. And it, it's, when you finish a, a show, you could be doing a long-running tour for nine months or something like my people in Showtime do, for instance. When they finish that gig, everybody will exchange phone numbers and um, say, oh, look, you know, we'll give each other a ring. This is probably a bit before digital. I don't I do not do uh, social media myself. But, uh, oh, yeah, we'll ring and we'll meet up for coffee and we'll have dinner. And, uh, you know, when, when you get to a certain <laughs> experience, you know you won't. No. <laughs> but you part with great fondness, might not see each other for another two years. When you do another another gig, another theatre show, the moment you, if you're cast with that same actor, you are as close as you were when you saw them two years ago. It is a huge bond created when you've shared dressing rooms, you've done eight shows a week, you've toured the country or whatever. Uh, well, that's what Home and Away became to me. I mean, 13 years when you include the, the, the pilot for me, uh, 13 years, it was just another show. When I left it, okay, what's the next show around the corner? What am I going to do? No, I don't miss a thing about television. Now, of course, my passion is is my books. Uh, and that's I'm as passionate about that as I was about the theatre. Television was always, oh, it was a joy. I liked the professionalism the, uh, of, the, of the show and it was a good slick show and all of that. But uh, it, it wasn't a passion. No. So you've just... The releases of this book is um, out now. And then how do you kind of park that as a writer and move on to the next book? I mean, have you already got the seed of the idea for the next book? I mean, how do you work that? Because I'd imagine in your head it's hard to leave one thing behind because you're so engaged with those characters and then move on to something else. Uh, I don't leave it behind. For instance, while I'm promoting uh, the book, uh, Showtime remains in my head. I'm living it still. Yeah. The characters are still with me, yeah. except for a couple who unfortunately had to die. Yeah. But I still remember them with great fondness, <laughs> um, actually, and great sadness because there's a couple of very tragic happenings. But, uh, no, I, I, I still live Showtime all the time as I'm, you know, if there were the germ of an idea in my head, it would have been well and truly parked. And there isn't, funnily enough, at the moment. There isn't. But uh, if there were, as I say, it wouldn't be in, in the forefront of my mind at all. Right. You just run with the book that you're working on at the moment. Yes. Yeah. 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 And in this case, <laughs> that'll be showtime. Yeah. It will be showtime. We, uh, I don't know if you know this, but you, uh, you did say you're not on social media. Uh, we have a huge social media following, as you know, Judy. Oh, uh, yes, it's wonderful. I think you do yeah. a great job. I love all those people that follow you and books in general. It's great. Yeah, and we've done a couple of Facebook Lives, you and I. Mm-hmm. Um, we've often been at events and I've pulled you away and asked you to talk to the camera, which you've always done so graciously. But the other day I asked, we we ran a post, I think it was just only on Monday, we ran a post and we asked the, um, our readers who their favourite Australian author is. Now, we had 2,000 responses, 2,000 if you can Good on that. you, great. Yeah, but, you know, your name came up very, very frequently. 
I don't oh, know how fun. many. I didn't. I didn't count, but you came up quite a bit. And I think one of the comments is she listed almost all your books. I think it was extraordinary. And you know, people were having conversations about Judy Nunn, and and I just love that there is such a lovely connection between you and audience. How do you feel about that? You know, about readers and how. They well, look, I, I feel I feel utterly, utterly privileged. I yeah. mean, you know, your comments just then that is that is thrilling, and it is a privilege. And this is the the, the part that I I do really miss about COVID uh, is the tour. This is wonderfully, you know, it's clever and it's great doing these virtual events that I'm currently doing, and it's wonderful when people clock in, and you know, that's great. But I tour normally I tour the entire country. They look after me very well, Penguin Random House, and they send me all around the country. And some of these places are quite remote, a lot of regional places, and as I say, some really out in the sticks. And people so love to see you coming to their area. And as for having written a book based around their area, it's and the warmth is extraordinary. And this it, it never ceases to to amaze me just how how lost in this historically based fiction uh, many that my readers have become, and they love it. And that that that's very thrilling to me. It's a real privilege. Do you know it's very thrilling to me because when because uh, I read all all our comments. So when I see Judy Nunn come up. And because I know you and because we've met, it's just so thrilling to me. It's so thrilling, I think, that social media has been used in a, you know, as a terrible tool, but in many ways in the book community, in the reading community, even outside of COVID, I think it has taken away that barrier and has really connected writers with their readers. And I love the fact that it's so instant and they can tell us straight away how they feel. And I I just, I really enjoy that. And I think readers enjoy that as well. Oh, I think it's one of the truly positive aspects of social media, undoubtedly. As you said, there's a hideous side to social media. Uh, But there's also, there are wonderful connections. And, you know, I mean, it's the way the world is going. (laughs) I'm not saying, oh, no, I hate social media. This is why I don't do it. I just don't really have time. I mean, I turn a computer on and that means I'm writing a book. So this is why I, I distance myself from that. But I do quite a bit of social media via my publishers. And, um, yeah, I think that's a wonderfully positive side. I agree with you. Yeah, I really do. I think we've given we've given readers access to to people that they admire and books they like reading. And another thing I like about them is that they the the comments are usually positive. I, I've seen comments where people say, "Oh, well, I'm not quite sure about this book," and then somebody, just another reader, will jump in and say, "You know, just get past the first hundred pages and you'll be there." And you know, just that encouragement, I really love. I, I enjoy yeah, that interaction. Yeah, it is great. So, Judy. Congratulations. What can I say? Another wonderful book. Can you tell me what book number this is? It's number 16, Cheryl. And uh, it's uh, so that makes it actually 30 years of storytelling. Wow. Yeah. So it's 30 years. It's That's from the day my first book was published in 1991. So that took two years before then to get that together. So although it's 30 years, two years a book, it's 16 books, which is rather cool, I think. I think that's very cool. Now, listen, so I guess uh, same time, same place in two years' time? I reckon, yeah, for sure. (laughs) Okay, Judy Nunn, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Thanks, Cheryl. See ya. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. 
Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.